Um, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. So uh, a few aspects to this, uh, the idea that as time progresses and we get closer to the uh, you know uh, return of Christ for the church and uh, you know the tribulation and uh, the end of this age, <clears throat> we're going to see people depart from the faith. Um, it's historically happened in cycles over and over again that as um, you know we get closer and closer to those occasions of God's correction and discipline. Uh, you know, people fall away from the faith. Um, you know, I often think of where the scripture tells us that because of sin, the love of many will, you know, wax cold or grow cold. And, um, you know, that's often presented as the idea of, uh, you know, that uh, the, the sinfulness uh, will cause people to sort of despair and fall away. But it, it you know, has more to do with the idea that the sinfulness of those who profess to be believers will cause them to fall away, that their hearts and minds and lives will be uh, affected and infected by that sinfulness and, and they'll fall away. They, they won't find the need. They won't find the desire uh, to be in fellowship. So, you know, obviously as a culture becomes more and more godless, then uh, you're going to see, you know, the numbers within the faithful uh, diminishing. Certainly, we can see that uh, right now. You know, a lot of people are looking at it like, "Oh, well, you know, COVID nineteen and these different things that are going on." But uh, you look at places like um, China, where there's massive persecution and difficulty, and uh, the church is thriving there because it has a purifying effect upon them he incorporates this <clears throat> um, discussion of the doctrine of demons uh, within paul's setting and this discussion it's interesting to note that most of what he's talking about uh there you know the uh forbidding to marry the um abstaining from certain foods has more to do with judaism uh, we um, you know, have uh, a certain application in regard especially to marriage and even the abstaining from foods in regard uh, to Roman Catholicism, okay, where, you know, they're forbidding priests uh, to marry, where, you know, uh, Paul specifically puts the mandate forward uh, in, in both Timothy and Titus that uh, those that are going to be pastors, uh, overseers of the church, are supposed to be married if you know if they have a desire to be married, and he gives the specific mandates as to how 
the the leadership is to conduct themselves in their families and in their homes. Uh, so you kind of have to take our modern uh, experience and um, fit it together with uh, Judaism and how it was affecting the church. This overarching um, false teaching uh, is derived from hell itself. It's ungodly. It's not from the Lord. You don't find this in the scripture, the forbidding of marrying. Uh, you know, e even the mindset, you guys, of, oh, the earth is so wicked, how could we possibly bring children into this environment? You know, that may be a legitimate question for, you know, I know you guys, uh, and you live contrary to that. You have families, you have children. But there's that concern uh, for some people, and, and that goes against the scripture. Uh, you, you look at what the Lord is saying about marriage and how he hates, uh, in, in Malachi, how he hates divorce, he goes on to say that the responsibility of believers is to have families and to raise up God the offspring. Children, homes, family. Uh, this is the desire of the Lord. It's why he created the human race, was procreation uh, for uh, you know our benefit and for uh, worshiping him. So it's an ungodly doctrine. And, and notice how he talks about you know having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Um, uh, just having a conversation today, you know, we hear a lot of these things, you know, social justice and different things. And, uh, you know, the, the question was raised in the discussion I was having about, uh, you know, what do you, you know, how do you view uh, the, um, the irony and uh, the development of America, how, uh, you know, simultaneously we had, uh, you know, slavery expanding and freedom being promoted. You know, you have the Declaration of Independence, uh, you know, all men created equal, while simultaneously there's a massive amount of slaves being brought to America. And, you know, I made the point in the discussion that, look, the human race has always been wicked and trying to conquer and enslave one another. So, you know, the illustration I gave is like, you know, you, you've got a racetrack and one of the cars is named slavery and one of the cars is named freedom. You know, so slavery has been on the track for a long time going around in circles and everybody's like, oh, you know, this great wickedness is winning. And you let freedom out on the racetrack in, you know, 1776 and it not only flies by slavery, but then it laps slavery you know, many times and wins hands down. America got rid of slavery. You know, the freedom that uh, was was seen in that was the churches in America were preaching that freedom, and it eclipsed the slavery that was here. The doctrine of devils. When we see the truth of God's word introduced to it, wipes out, you know, the, the, the truth of God's word wipes out uh, the uh, ungodly doctrines that uh, may be in a culture. Uh, you know, it's part of the reason that in certain places, the, the wicked men and the wicked uh, influences within a culture fought so hard against uh, Paul and his preaching. Uh, you know, you can see Alexander the coppersmith 
uh, as Paul comes in and begins to preach and their business starts to plummet, they freak out. Or, you know, we're going to lose tons of money. Uh, what are we seeing in our culture right now? This massive rise of a conscience that's been seared with a hot iron of sin is trying to overtake the truth. Uh, visited a church uh, this past Sunday and taught there, and several people came up to me afterwards. <coughs> several, a few people came up to me afterwards. Uh, they had uh, fallen under the influence of some false teachers from their community that are trying to say uh, the women have to wear uh, head coverings and uh, you can't eat these foods and uh, you, you know you have to go to church on these specific days. And so, so my point is <clears throat> these doctrines, these false teachings from time to time do crop up and it's up to us uh, to make sure it's up to us the few of us in this room, to make sure that wherever possible, we speak openly against them. You know, people get upset with me and say that I, you know, I'm a Catholic basher because I don't shy away from going straight at the issue that are incorrect and saying, you know, this stems from this denomination that has promoted this for centuries. And that's a false teaching that, that, uh, you know, the leaders of the church are supposed to be unmarried people. Uh, it's, it's totally possible. You know, Paul puts that you know, idea forward that, hey, you know, if you don't ha have a compulsion to get married, um, you know, don't get married. Uh, continue to serve the Lord. Then you don't have to be concerned about, uh, you know, a family. But if you get uh, married, then it is your God-given obligation and ministry to be concerned about your family. Uh, so here, you know, you have these false teachings that have come up and he's, you know, saying that that's not come from the truth. Uh, a conclusion for anyone that struggles <coughs> with this <coughs> can clearly be seen in Colossians uh, chapter two uh, from verse 16 all the way to the end, but two verses, Colossians chapter two, verses 16 and then verse 23, 16 says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moons or Sabbaths. Then in verse 23, he summarizes all of the discussion by saying, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and the neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You know, it's it's all a man-made, uh, you know, appearance and an outward thing that, you know, causes people to, in pride, try to convince others of this thing. So be on guard, you know, and, and keep yourself from these things. In verse 6, he says, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Christ, nourished in the words of truth and of good of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. You know, if you instruct the people under your care in these things, then you're a good minister who's strong in the word. Um, I, you know, I have a very difficult time not 
uh, instructing people in these things. Uh, you know, someone will come and ask a question regarding, you know, some particular thing that I can see they're clearly wrong in. And <clears throat> honestly, my fleshly desire is to let's talk about any other thing because my saying something about the subject is going to be confrontational and uh, you know it, it might not promote friendship between us but i have to say what's right i have an obligation before god not to do those things and that's what makes a good minister you know, i i had a uh, an individual early on when we started this fellowship uh, who uh, came to me and he was very upset with me because I had been confrontational on a number of subjects that, uh, you know, he had been engaged in sinfulness within his life. And I'm, you know, addressing those things very lovingly, very graciously, but very directly. And he left the church and before he did, he came and he, he very tearfully explained to me that um, he had expected me to be his best friend. And that that what he was expecting from a pastor was that, you know, he would he was hoping he could find a best friend, and I was trying to explain. Well, I mean, that's what I was trying to do. You know, you, you know, if you've got a big black smear of, uh, you know, been working on your car and you've got grease on your face and you show up at church and everybody sees that, but no one says anything to you. You know, you're just walking around like nothing's wrong, and you got you know, big old. Uh, and then somebody finally comes up and goes, do you know you have grease on your face? And helps you clean it off. Uh, that's that's really your only friend in that setting. Everyone else that has looked you in the face and not said anything. You know, I think, uh, you know, girls, uh, to a degree, understand this better. You know, if, if your appearance is messed up, <laughs> you know, a guy, one thing, but, you know, if someone will actually say, do you realize like your, you know, lipstick is smeared across your cheek, you know, th th then that, you know, that's a friend that will tell you and uh, help correct the situation. You, you know, hear Paul saying you are a good pastor if you teach this doctrine, if, if you say the things that need to be said. Verse seven, but reject <coughs> profane and old wives fables and exercise yourself toward godliness he's going to talk about that a little bit more later in the chapter the just the idle chatter and talk that goes on uh, you know I, I think of the way that the church um you know thinks about so many things uh, a, a thing that you know pops to mind every time i read this it is the false teaching that if you know bad things are happening to you, then you must have done something wrong. You know, which also implies if good things are happening to you, then you must be a good person. Okay, <clears throat> Jesus specifically addressed the issue and said, "The rain falls on the just and the unjust." Rain was not a curse in that culture, right? We don't care for rain. Um, we're not farmers. You know, all we really think about is, you know, getting through the rain. I got to get out to the car. I got to get out of the car and go into work. And I got to get, I got it all day long. I'm going to have to deal with rain. 
farmers see the rain coming, especially in the Middle East, and they're overjoyed. And their, their thought was, how can it be that I am so righteous? And, and maybe they were. And, and I don't get any rain on my crops. Yeah, I look over there, and I know that farmer over there is a particularly wicked man. And yet he gets rain on his crops. And the Lord's making that statement. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. So this mentality, you know, just as an example, reject profane and old wives' fables. Whatever you might think of, the things that you have been able to look at the Scripture and see that the Scripture corrects those teachings and shows you that what is commonly thought on a subject is not true. You know, the, the think about uh, Jesus being asked about the man uh, with a physical uh, illness. You know, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents? And Jesus says neither. You know, this man is sick so that God can be glorified, and he heals the man, and God is glorified in the circumstances. Uh, there are lots of things within the church that people hold to as though they were true, and we need to reject those things and not argue about them. Exercise yourself toward godliness. And then he says, for bodily exercise profits a little. The idea of there is benefit within physical exercise, but it's limited. You know, uh, we've seen many, the professional athlete who's, you know, the top performer in their area of sport, and they're incredibly ungodly. You know, he's, he's saying, you know, yeah, physical exercise has a degree of benefit, but it's very limited. Whereas, in contrast, for godliness is profitable for all things, right? One of those fables, we hear people sometimes say, Oh, well, that person is so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. That's not possible. I mean, you might find someone who professes to be godly, and they're a hypocrite. And, you know, so in that end, really what you're saying is that person is a hypocrite. If someone's truly heavenly minded, godly, pursuant of a relationship with God, then there's going to be a benefit in their life in all areas. Everything about their life is going to be uh, profited by that. Bodily exercise, it does have a benefit, but it's limited. Godliness, profitable for all things. Having promise of the life that now is. I underlined that because it says, and of what which or that which is to come. So very often, people look at uh, godliness and they go, you know, in their mind, they're thinking, okay, you know, this person is looking forward to heaven. You know, they, they're, they've got their sights set outside of this world. They, they've got their sights set on, you know, eternity. When in fact, uh, Paul is saying, no, you know, this godliness is profitable now in all things. It's not just in, you know, the nether world, you know, beyond our ability to know. It's in the here and the now. 
uh, <clears throat> I look at, you know, the people that I was living my life in and around uh, when I surrendered my life. And uh, we, we parted ways as far as the roads we were on. We were all on the same path, headed in the same directions. And, uh, you know, there's a small group of, of uh, you know, I was going to say friends, but acquaintances that I was around. A few of them are dead because of their sin. Uh, you know, I've been to a couple of their funerals. Uh, two of them are in prison for life. Uh, you know, one in Vermont and uh, one in New Hampshire. Uh, you know, others ha have destroyed themselves with drugs and alcohol. That was the road I was on. I got off from that road. And today, you know, I have, a, I would say for myself, for my own consideration, a very fulfilled life. It's a simple life, but it's, it's very uh, gratifying to me, my family, uh, you know, the people around me. Uh, the godliness that I have pursued with my life is very beneficial to me now. Yeah, there is the future also, but we, we shouldn't listen to the uh, philosophy and the thinking of the ungodly. They view Christianity, they view the Bible, they view you know, a life of godliness as you know, somehow a waste of this life. You know, there's all kinds of things to enjoy that we're missing out on. Yeah, right. You know, everybody loves a good hangover. You know, it's just all the things we've missed. You know, all the pain and the divorce and all the problems that are generated by ungodliness. So there's a life in Christ that's very fulfilling in this lifetime. Verse 9, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we... Uh, both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe these things command and teach. Now, <clears throat> this statement, who is the Savior of all men, uh, the statement is uh, in potential. That that uh, there is no other savior, uh, you know. Uh, Buddha is not the savior of some men, and Muhammad the savior of another group of men, and Jesus the savior of Christians. Right? Jesus alone is the savior of all men. If you want salvation, you're only going to find it in Jesus Christ. It also has another application uh, in what he was saying that I think is very significant. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to discuss Calvinism versus Armenianism versus the middle ground position that I try to take. And I'm not trying to prove my point as better or anything of that nature. You guys know especially that uh, what my position, what our position is, <clears throat> is that Calvinism versus Armenianism particular particularly just creates division in the body of Christ. Um, both sides of that discussion have very legitimate uh, understandings of the scripture and, and make very valid points. Uh, other points that they make are completely invalid. Um, and they're, they're clinging to those ideas to the neglect of many other portions of scripture. I just want to give two verses 
that both sides want to ignore that, to, in my opinion, draws the middle ground on this issue. First uh, John chapter 2, verse 2 says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the whole world. Now, our Calvinistic brothers want to say that when uh, it says the whole world, it means the elect. And that's not how it's written. It literally means the whole world. Well, the whole world is not going to get saved. People are going to reject God. Right. But <coughs> he has died for the sins of the whole world. Anyone that would embrace that could receive that. A similar uh, discussion, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 uh, any of us that have studied the scripture for any amount of time know that false prophets, false teachers are destined to go to hell if they don't repent and that they will be cast into outer darkness with the devil and his angels. You know, the worst degree of eternal punishment that the Lord has ever created. I don't know how there could be varying degrees of hell, but, you know, seems to be that he's saying that the devil and his angels and False teachers will be cast into a deeper uh, state of torment. However that works, I'll leave that up to the Lord. Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says that the Lord paid for the sins of the false prophets and the false teachers. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, And there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Jesus Christ paid the price. My lame illustration is, uh, you know, he's given them a check for eternal life, and they have refused to cash it. As a result, uh, they don't get to experience it. They, they are rejecting it. Point being, it is God's sovereignty and his choice, but it is also our free will and our choice. You want to be one of the chosen, one of the elect? Then choose him. So you can wrestle with that on your own. Verse 12, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. So there is an imperative command given by Paul of do not let anyone despise your youth. So let's imagine that Timothy is pastoring this church and he suddenly recognizes that someone is being disrespectful of him because they're older than him, let's say, and they don't respect him for the fact that he's younger. It's not Timothy's job at that point to get in their face and say something like, do you know who I am? You know, Dude, don't you understand I'm the pastor here? And, you know, to make his case that I can't let you despise me even though that I'm younger than you and, you know, somehow demand it. It's the idea of, you know, be an example so that they have no ground to despise you even though you're younger. You know, 
If, if they are disrespectful, he might have to address that directly. He gives specific directions about how he's not supposed to rebuke older men. He's supposed to entreat them, make his case to them as he would a father. And you know, we know from the scripture that Timothy's father uh, was uh, you know, part of Timothy's life. That his father was a Greek and his mother was Jewish. So uh, here, that statement, let no one despise your youth, but be an example. That, that's a good uh, outline for us, all of us. Be an example amongst the believers in the church. How? In word. You know, clearly that is the general idea of speech. You know, the way you communicate. Um, shouldn't be uh, with coarse jesting or you know things that the scripture condemns, uh, meaningless talk, you know, getting caught up in the you know Jewish wives' tales that they are referring to in uh, previous verses. Uh, you know, sober speech from the scripture in your conduct, the way you behave. Um, I I think of. In my younger years, some of the things that I did that I'm embarrassed about now, the way that I behaved. I mean, the you know admonition here from Paul is that the conduct should be mature in love, you know, in spirit, in faith, in purity. You know, be exemplary as you lead this church. Then thirteen, same uh, mindset till you know, do these things till I come, and then also. Give attention to reading and exhortation. Uh, this uh, idea of exhortation is significant. Uh, you know, an address or communication that is insistently urging someone to do something is, is what's being implied. So, you know, your conduct as a, as a pastor, Timothy, is that one you should be reading the Word of God. And that as you do, that reading should be resulting in you communicating with the body of believers that you're leading about the things they need to be doing with their lives. Be insistent about uh, you know what you're teaching and what you're leading them in <clears throat> to doctrine. You know the, the the idea of it needs to pertain to the Word of God. You know, you know he's not encouraging Timothy. You know just be a reader. Be be a guy who just read magazines, read articles, you know, read biographies. Be a reader. I mean, some of that is helpful when you're viewing it through the lens of the Word of God. I, I recently heard part of an interview uh, with Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice, and uh, in particular the uh, allegations that were brought against him uh, during his confirmation hearing, and. Uh, he was asked, you know, how did you guys make it uh, through that, you and your wife? And he didn't even flinch and said uh, it was through prayer, uh, through our faith in Jesus Christ and the support of the people around us who love Jesus Christ the same degree that we did and prayed for us with the same intensity we were praying. <laughs> I, I instantly was like, I, you know, I need to get this man's biography and, uh, you know, read uh, what it is uh, 
that he you know has experienced in his life. You know, so reading, you know, yeah, broadly says, but obviously he's talking about reading the Word of God, so that what you are insistently urging people to do comes from a position of doctrine. It needs to be your faith that's being relayed. Uh, verse 14, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with a laying on of hands of the eldership. So, you know, I have literally come across a handful of um, teachers that want to talk about how, you know, that's how you're going to receive. So if you want a particular gift of the Spirit, you know, then you need to go to somebody who who either has that gift is what they teach, who that when they pray for you, you'll receive the gift they have. So, if they prophesy, you go to a you know a prophet and you have the prophet lay hands. And I'm I'm not I'm I'm just telling you what the thought process is. I'm not promoting this mindset. Uh, uh, you know they t they falsely teach. So if you want to be a prophet, you got to go find a prophet, and you have that prophet lay his hands upon you, and then when they pray for you, you'll receive the gift of prophecy. Or if you want to speak in tongues, or if you want to be an evangelist, or if you want to be a pastor, you go find these people and you have them lay their hands on you, and when they pray, then you'll receive the same spirit that they have upon them. Well, uh, if you just took the concept, okay, and didn't examine the scripture, uh, you might be led to think that. I'll give you two. There are many. I'll give you two passages of scripture. Acts chapter 8, verse 17 says, Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Timothy received the Holy Spirit. Uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 6, When Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. The gift comes from the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gives to each one what he wants to give for the benefit of the church. So if he knows whatever church we're involved in needs a specific thing, and we are asking for his spirit to be upon us, uh, then he will give us that spirit. The laying on of hands, um, if possible, and that is uh, what needs to happen and does happen, great. But really what we're looking for is the Holy Spirit, whether it come through the laying on of hands or simply our praying, right? Because what did Jesus say? If you ask for the Holy Spirit, it will be given to you. Right? You, you are wicked fathers, and you know how to give good gifts. And he gives those almost humorous examples of, you know, which of you, if your son would ask you for, you know, something good to eat, would give him something. You know, you're gonna, your kid needs an egg, are you going to give him a scorpion? You know, if he wants a fish, are you going to give him a snake? Are you going to give him something deadly? If, if you know how to give good gifts, how much more will your Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask. So read again, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with a laying on of hands of the eldership. What is Timothy's gift? Well, immediately from this, some of those teachers go, well, clearly it's prophecy. Because 
they prophesied over him and laid hands on him. That's an assumption because what I know from the scripture is that Timothy has been gifted with being a pastor and a teacher. That's why Paul put him in the place that he is at and he's doing the work that he is doing. Uh, this is you know, what the Lord's called him to. Meditate on these things, verse 15. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Not partially. Not sometimes. Given what <coughs> Paul said about physical exercise and what he talks to Timothy about uh, regarding running the race and competing, uh, there are a few indications that Timothy was athletic. And here Paul is saying you need to give yourself wholeheartedly to the gift and the ministry that the Lord has given you. You want to do those other things? Perfectly fine. What you need to meditate on are the things the Lord has given you to do. Um, you guys know the whole understanding of meditation same word as ruminating, which means to chew the cud. Right? Uh, the Levitical law uh, says that you know the animals that we can eat are uh, those that have the split hoof and that ruminate, chew the cud. Um, you know, pigs have split hoof; they do not chew the cud. Uh, rabbits, interestingly enough do chew the cud, but they don't ruminate, they, or, they, or they don't have the split hoof. Meditate, ruminate, to thoroughly digest, to bring it up again, and thoroughly digest again, and to do this over and over again until you've extracted everything you can uh, that is nutritious and beneficial. Here, uh, all of these things I've spoken to you about, about your conduct, about your ministry, about your gifting, about your calling. I want you to meditate on these things and make them your everything so that you will be fulfilled in it. Uh, we so very often <coughs> get distracted in all other areas of life and the progress is hampered. Rather than the progress spiritually being obvious to everyone who encounters us, uh, they can see that there's a slowing and a stagnation and a deterioration. M may it be that we would meditate upon it and that it would be obvious to everyone. <clears throat> Take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. <clears throat> this is not the idea of salvation uh, the idea of um, your working on this, your doing these things will provide you with salvation. It's the idea that if you neglect these things, <clears throat> then the salvation that Jesus Christ provides is not part of your life. You are allowing those things to be deteriorated. Well, it's, uh, it's early, but uh, that's uh, chapter four, and I think for this evening we'll We'll end right there and pick up with uh, chapter 5 next week. Uh, you know, an overarching message of chapter 4 is, uh, you know, that ministry of Timothy. 
and then Paul's admonition to Timothy that look, make your ministry very, very strong. Uh, you know, all the other things, the false teachings, the doctrine, the doctrine that's going to come in, and the way things are going to deteriorate. Don't be like that. You yourself, you know, bore yourself into your faith and your gifts and your ministry and what the Lord has provided, you know, for you, that what you've been called to would have a very high degree of success and prosperity. So with that, we'll pick up at chapter five uh, next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, for your love and your graciousness in our lives. And I pray that you would continue to work in each of our hearts, that we would hear your voice and be led by the power of your Holy Spirit. Please accomplish what you want to in each of us. We look for your gifting, your anointing of your Holy Spirit and, and what you would call us to particularly. Help us to know those things, to discover those things, and to follow them with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.